Hi everyone, it's Matt with a special intro to this week's show. I'm speaking to you on Tuesday, August 30th from Florida's Space Coast, where yesterday I was one of hundreds of thousands hoping to see Artemis 1 head for the moon. And as you probably know, NASA scrubbed that first attempt, mostly because of a problem with one of the main engines. We should hear in a few hours if the Space Launch System rocket will be ready for another try on September 2nd. Here's this week's Planetary Radio episode that I produced before I left California. Much more of my coverage of the Voyager mission 45th anniversary celebration is at planetary.org radio and in this week's podcast. You can also go there to hear my complete and delightful conversation with Andrewian. Go Artemis! A party for Voyager's 45th, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Join me at the Jet Propulsion Lab for a celebration of what is almost certainly the most popular planetary science mission of all time. We'll wrap up today's episode with What's Up and the very cool Voyager prizes Bruce Betts and I will make available to the winner of a new space trivia contest. As this episode of our show is published, I may or may not still be on Florida's Space Coast. It all depends on whether that mighty new rocket, the Space Launch System, or SLS, launched during its first two-hour window on the morning of August 29th. I sure hope so, but I'm producing this show a couple of days before the 29th so that I can jump on a plane to the Kennedy Space Center. A very knowledgeable former NASA friend gives the Artemis One mission a 40% chance of liftoff during the first opportunity, which sounds about right. I'll stick around for the second attempt on Friday, September 2nd, if needed. Check out the August 26th edition of the Downlink, the Planetary Society's free weekly newsletter, for links to our great coverage. Speaking of getting the first woman and the next man to the moon, as NASA likes to say, the U.S. Space Agency has selected 13 possible landing sites for Artemis III. All are in the south polar region of our trusty natural satellite, the region with those permanently shadowed areas with lots of water ice. The final decision is still many months away. Many of you have probably seen the jaw-dropping new infrared images of Jupiter delivered by the JWST. If not, you can check them out at planetary.org slash downlink. I was not surprised to read the JWST scientists are surprised and thrilled by the performance of their new space telescope, There's more to this story, and it includes the work of citizen scientist and image processor extraordinaire Judy Schmidt. Judy will join us here on Planetary Radio soon. Voyager 2 lifted off from Florida on August 20, 1977. Its sister craft, Voyager 1, followed on September 5. Scientists and engineers hoped they'd last at least five years, They've now been exploring and reporting their findings for nine times that span. Both are now deemed to have reached interstellar space, where most of the influence of our star ends and the forces of the vast Milky Way galaxy take over. Ahead is the Oort cloud of comets that reach halfway to the next nearest star. 
The Voyagers are unlikely to still be alive by then, but they will go on across the void for perhaps billions of years. Each carries greetings, messages of hope, pictures, and sounds from across our life-filled planet, and the best playlist ever created, in my humble opinion. And all this is after they revealed the worlds of our outer solar system as never before, teaching us again that our neighborhood is full of surprises. It was several months ago that I first heard from Linda Spilker and Suzanne Dodd about their plans for a party. I'm so glad to have been invited. Linda has returned as Deputy Project Scientist for Voyager, even as she continues as Project Scientist for Cassini. And Suzanne is the latest in a distinguished roster of project managers on the Voyager mission. Their party took place in the Jet Propulsion Lab's Von Karman Auditorium, right where people have gathered over and over to hear the announcements of Voyager's discoveries for 45 years. Linda and Suzanne took turns as onstage MCs, welcoming current lab staff, interns born well after the Neptune encounter, media folks like me, and with great honor, members of the mission team who go back a half century. None were as honored or celebrated as Ed Stone, the only project scientist Voyager has ever had. Ed's health prevented him from presenting, but he enjoyed being greeted by hundreds of attendees, young and old. Here's part of Suzanne's tribute from the Von Karman stage. Ed's been on the project for 50 years as a project scientist, and that almost deserves, I think, a standing ovation. So Ed, thank you so much. Many of you remember that we talked with new JPL director Lori Leshen on our July 27 episode. Lori took the stage to add her kudos for Voyager and its team. Huge congratulations to this team. Uh, So many of you who have uh, been with this project over many years and, and all of us who stand in awe of it are thrilled to be here to celebrate you and that incredible, those two incredible spacecraft today. I think Voyager and Viking really are the foundation upon which all of modern planetary science has been built. And yes, there are other missions, and we can argue about whether the earlier mariners and the flybys should, should get that credit, and they probably should get some. But those two missions, and especially Voyager, as we look to the outer solar system now really becoming front and center in so many of our future uh, plans to explore. It's all about the foundation that Voyager laid. 45 years is an extraordinary accomplishment, but the foundation it laid and the legacy it leaves will live forever. This mission will go on forever because it will always be leading to that next level of exploration. And I've been talking a lot these days. People um, at headquarters are probably getting tired of me talking to them about the fact that I think we need to be thinking much more strategically about exploration of the outer solar system more collectively, more how to get there more frequently than once in a generation, how to make sure it's accessible because of the worlds, the worlds that Voyager revealed to us are so extraordinarily interesting that we just have a very long to-do list in the outer solar system. And so I'm so grateful to get to be here at a moment when we are really working to build upon the extraordinary legacy of Voyager. I just hope that you all know that 
the legacy that you have set is, is safe with us. And we are really, truly committed to carrying forward and building upon this inspirational mission that, that you have given us. And uh, not just with what follows onto it, but with these missions themselves. They're still going, right? I was like, 50 years, let's go. Let's, uh, we're already planning. So yeah, the party. We're already planning the party for the 50 years. As, as Carl said, someday humanity will, will venture beyond the solar system, will venture to the stars. And we won't be the first ones there. This craft is the first one. There can only ever be one first, and that really is you. So I'm just incredibly inspired to be able to just be in the same room with so many of you who uh, have carried this mission forward, and especially, Ed, to you, thank you for the science and for the incredible discoveries and for 50 years of commitment, because you've been at it for 50 years with this mission. We will, um, we will carry that legacy forward. With the party mostly over, Suzanne Dodds and Linda Spilker joined me in the small museum next to Von Karman Auditorium. Hell of a party, you two. When did we start to talk about this? I mean, you told me months ago, right, Linda? Right. We knew the 45th anniversary was coming up several months ago, and so we started to plan an event at first, low-key, show a movie, have the Voyager you know, family from JPL there, and it suddenly it just started to, to blossom and bloom and inviting retirees, and, and the event really grew. And you had cake, which you had promised uh, at the very beginning. Yes, we had cake, and um, I got to choose the flavors of the cake, so that at least I had some say. Um, it was a great event, and it's, it's great to have retirees come. It's great to mingle with current employees, and I think, you know, everybody that was in the room is touched by Voyager, whether they had spent two years on it, 20 years on it, or even just if they're an intern in, in, in Voyager was what got them interested in space. We were just talking about some of these, those old-timers those uh, Voyager veterans. I mean, I saw Charlie Colhays, got to say hi. It really is wonderful to see this group come together again. And it was especially gratifying to see Ed Stone, that he was able to attend and, and, and enjoy this, even if he wasn't able to, to speak. It was great to have Ed here and to recognize him for his 50 years as project scientist for Voyager. And really, he's sort of the, the heart and soul of Voyager, you know, keeping the scientists on track and making sure that we got out to the heliopause. That's really a credit to Ed. Suzanne, they showed the second episode in this sort of JPL history series that your colleague Blaine Baggett has done. And this was largely, not entirely, Voyager at Uranus, Neptune, and beyond. Let me just thank you because there you were doing some kind of, you were anchoring some video coverage for one of those encounters. Thank you for not staying in my business because I don't need the competition. Uh, yes, I don't think I was very good back then. Um, that was probably my first experience on live television. My public speaking is better now. It was certainly enjoyable and uh, a little nerve wracking, but the Neptune encounter was great. I, f I feel like it was a highlight of my uh, early career for sure. Is that about when you came on board, became part of the mission? I was, I started in, uh, before the Uranus encounter. So I, I worked on Uranus with the science team helping design their observations. And then for Neptune, I, I moved over to what's called the sequencing team, which is really the group of people that put together the sequences, the command strings that are gonna get sent to the spacecraft. And you, you do your best, you do, you check it, triple check it, quadruple check it, cross your fingers, it gets sent to the spacecraft and 
whoa, are you like glued to your screen to see if the correct images come down and things are pointed in the right direction. And it was just very gratifying to, to see it all work at Neptune. Thank goodness all those zeros and ones were in the right place. Correct. Linda, we've talked about this before, but remind me, you, you came into this mission much earlier. I actually came in in 1977, straight out of college, my first real job, and actually got here in time to go to the launch of Voyager 2. There was a science steering group meeting at the Cape, and they invited all of us new newcomers to come with them and be part of that launch, and it was so exciting. And, and I think about it, I don't think I could have imagined being here 45 years later with two working spacecraft now exploring interstellar space. It wasn't in the timeline. So what's happening? What are we continuing to discover out there in the interstellar void? Well, the discoveries are quite interesting, Matt, because it's not what we expected. We had these ideas just from looking from the inside out. And now that Voyager is actually on the outside making measurements, for instance, it seems like the magnetic field from the sun is controlling far out past the heliopause. And we haven't rotated the magnetic field yet into the direction of the interstellar magnetic field. We can measure the actual cosmic ray density for the first time because the heliopause is an excellent shield from those high energy cosmic rays, that radiation. And so it shields quite a, quite a lot of them out and now we can measure them directly. Also, there are shocks that come from the sun, propagate out into the interstellar medium and Voyager sees these shocks in the magnetic field data, in the plasma wave data, and it's so exciting to see that interstellar space isn't boring. There's a, there's a lot to see out there. It's kind of like being in a turbulent sea, in a sense, and trying to sense the eddies and currents of interstellar space. Suzanne, how are those two old-timers doing? Well, they're, they're hanging in there. They are old-timers. Yeah, you may have heard recently we had a, a little hiccup with Voyager 1, although it looks like uh, we can get over that. We may need to operate the spacecraft slightly differently going forward, but that's what you do with any mission. Once you launch it, you can't go to it and fix it, right? In Voyager's case, it's a little bit of the extreme since it's 15 billion miles from us uh, and it's 1975 technology. Uh, but we can make, make changes to flight software and we can uh, sort of work around issues that there might be with um, command streams and things like that. So that's, we're really digging into the problem now, but I think we're, we will be able to work around it. I've asked this question of Linda and others many times, but uh, how much longer do we think we have? Assuming everything continues to work, but those watts continue to fall as that, that RTG cools off. Right. We lose four watts of power a year. And so we've, over time, we've been turning off different subsystems, and we just finished turning off all the instrument heaters. The instruments, miraculously, are still working. They're at, they're at temperatures that they weren't designed for, weren't tested for, uh, but yet they work, and all the data that's coming back is, is still great data. So, again, Voyager is a really incredibly remarkable spacecraft from a longevity standpoint. Um, but looking forward, you know, I would say we have a stretch goal of getting out to 200 AU. You know, as a manager, I say that's my stretch goal. That's where I want to get, and that, that's 15 more years. I definitely think there'll be a 50th anniversary party and, and likely with two spacecraft still operating. When we start to get to 2030, it might be a little more iffy, but every bit of data that Voyager takes now, because it's in situ, it's in interstellar space, is important. 
it's unique and it's important. And using in situ data with other sp spacecraft that are looking at the heliosphere remotely from like our Earth's orbit, you put that all together and you get a much better model of what's going on in, in our heliosphere. And still returning first. Yes, Voyager is definitely the pathfinder. And if you think about it, the two Voyagers are now our first interstellar travelers, collecting data in a place nothing has flown before and revealing new discoveries. And I'm sure there's more to come. Thank you both. Once again, great party. So glad that I could join you. And I'll, I'll see you for the 50th. Excellent. All Thank right. you so much. Yes, definitely. See you for the 50th. The party's over, but the celebration continues in a minute with Andrewian. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Hello, I'm George Takei, and as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. Boldly go to build our future. Welcome back. Andrewian is the Emmy and Peabody Award-winning creator, executive producer, writer, and director of the second and third seasons of Cosmos. She's also the founder of Cosmos Studios in Ithaca, New York. Forty-five years ago, she served as creative director for the Voyager Interstellar Message Project. The result was the Golden Records that are now headed across the cosmos. She partnered with Carl Sagan in Life and in the creation of many of their best-known and most affecting books and other works. What a great metric that is of the vastness that traveling at, let's say, I'm going to use miles, but let's say at 38,000 miles per hour for 45 years, and yet it's not even a single light day from Earth. Does that tell you just how big <laughs> the cosmos is and how, how impressive at the same time? Two spacecraft built only 20 years after Sputnik, only 20 years after a simple aluminum bowling ball <laughs> was the most ambitious and exciting thing we had ever launched into the cosmos. And a mere 20 years later, two interstellar craft built with the technology of the mid 1970s, and yet still teaching us so much about our neighborhood. I just can't get over the genius of the engineers, the scientists, the technicians who built the Voyagers. And of course, you know, to know that on each of them is our golden record with all of its feeling and artistry, a talent 
the musical talent of the world, the imagery, mm. the voices, the feelings. So when I think of Voyager, I just think this is that rare place where our scientific cleverness and our artistic talent are converging in the same place to speak for us, perhaps even five billion with a B years from now, when, when we will not be able to speak for ourselves. How astonishing that is. Time for a uh, Voyager special anniversary edition of What's Up. And here is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, Bruce Betts. Hey there, I, you, you're obviously a fan of that mission. Huge fan. Hard to be into planetary science and not be a huge fan of Voyager. Yeah, I was showing posters to somebody at the office yesterday, and there was the there were the mission posters uh, done for us by Chop Shop. We had done the poll for them, and Voyager was chosen at that point as the people's favorite planetary science robotic mission. And I, I think that's still true. It's quite amazing. It's hard to argue with its longevity or uh, the new worlds that the two spacecraft opened up to us. Yeah. So what do you want to open up to us? Uh, old worlds uh, <laughs> that we've seen before, but it's neat to see them again. Saturn up at sunset in the east looking yellowish we've got an hour or two later we've got jupiter coming up bright in the east a couple hours later we got mars in the middle of the night and coming up earlier all the time and getting brighter all the time as earth and mars grow closer over the next couple months and uh, near mars check out aldebaran which is a bright reddish star that'll be near the even much brighter these days mars who is, of course, reddish. And in the pre-dawn sky, if you've got a nice clear view to the eastern horizon, you can check out Venus. Otherwise, it's going to be tough. It's uh, it's going away. It's taking a sabbatical for a little bit. And mm. It's just headed off. We move on to this week in space history. Anything happen this week, Matt? It remains to be seen as we speak, but uh, I bet you have other stuff that already happened. It turns out, and you probably haven't discussed this, but in 1977, Voyager 1 was launched. Oh, there's that. <laughs> Details. A year earlier, uh, Viking 2 landed successfully on Mars. We move on to random space fact. I've never uh, been a huge fan of the hypothetical uh, disturbing facts, but... Uh, People seem to enjoy them, so here you go. Here's one for all of you. An unprotected human somehow riding on Voyager 1 during its Jupiter encounter would have received a radiation dose equal to 1,000 times the lethal level. Now, <laughs> of course, all? they would be in a, in a vacuum of space as soon as it launched, so, you know, it's, a, it's very hypothetical. But, yeah, only 1,000 times. If it were 500 times, then... You know, action heroes could make it through, but I don't. I don't think they're going to survive a thousand times. Plus, I think that the mini fridge on the Voyager spacecraft was eliminated for budgetary and mass reasons early on. So you probably have nothing to keep your sandwich, uh, your McDLT cold. <laughs> but there, there's some uh, RTGs with the that'll keep them warm. Some uh, radioisotope thermoelectric generators. Good thinking. Good. Thinking. Although they're they're cooling off all the time. I don't know why you don't like this stuff. I love it. Hey, let's go on to what may have been the most frustrating and poorly responded to contest in the history of planetary radio. Yes. I mean, I am so sorry 
<laughs> Sadly, it refers to a uh, Planetary Society project, totally new kind of thing that was on a spacecraft that failed. What TPS spacecraft flight project had a penguin as part of its logo? We did great. We got at least uh, two, maybe six entries, right? <laughs> a few more than that, but not many. Most of you talked about how tough this was. Many of you said that you were making guesses. Our own poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas, not only got it right, but uh, had a poem to accompany it. Here it is. Back in 1999, a contest was begun to name a bird departing for the fourth rock from the sun. "'Twas a penguin, colored green, and headed far from home, a mascot on the logo of a Martian microphone. It was named for Admiral Byrd, a southern polar guy, but unlike him, our penguin launched into the earthly skies. I draw a curtain over what the ending had in store, but it will be sufficient that a penguin never soars." <laughs> Oh, God. oh, wow. Too soon? <laughs> yeah. I was involved with all the other permutations of microphones that either flew and didn't go on or didn't get accepted. Or anyway, it's a long, sad story. Fortunately, now others have followed in our wake and gotten sounds from Mars Perseverance, Perseverance rover. Uh, I'm really impressed. He not only got it right, he knew the penguin was green and named Admiral Byrd. Those are correct, and I uh, I will send you a, a picture of the Mars microphone sticker. Uh, uh, so it was the first attempt to get sounds from the surface of Mars. Unfortunately, was uh, on board the Mars Polar Lander spacecraft, which failed when trying to land in the polar regions where penguins hang out in the South Pole. Okay. All right. <laughs> Well, Dave Fairchild, uh, believe it or not, random.org didn't have a whole lot to choose from, but it did choose you. So we're going to send you that copy of the Spacefarer's Handbook, Science and Life Beyond Earth by Brigitte and Urs Gans. Uh, it's a really fun book uh, to read. Good job. And nice job, everyone. And sorry to torture you. Uh, we talk about Mars microphones, including this one on our site, but somehow over the years, Admiral Byrd has faded away. I have really been looking forward to this next contest because it is uh, Voyager focused, at least in terms of prize. I haven't heard the question yet. What have you got for us? Here's your question. How many JPL directors have there been since the Voyagers launched? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. You need to get us this one by the 7th. That'll be Wednesday, September 7 at uh, 8 a.m. Pacific time. And here are the great prizes, plural. Ooh. Voyager photographs from humanity's greatest journey. It is a brand new coffee table uh, book. Just looks absolutely gorgeous. Uh, it's from Jens Besmer. He's the author, one of the two authors, Joel Nader as well. It's from Tenoya's Publishing. And uh, it's already on Amazon. It's brand new. Uh, you can probably find it, I'm sure, other places as well. But wait, there's more. No way. <laughs> Back during the Neptune encounter of 1989, August 1989, the Planetary Society had some medallions made. And on one side, it says the Planetary Society salutes the men and women of Voyager. And there were 5,000 of these medallions made. I'm holding number 3,618. Uh, on the back is the uh, design that decorates the cover for the Voyager Golden Record 
on both uh, spacecraft, which uh, I have uh, right behind me here in my office as well. We have one of those at least that we can send out uh, to the winner of uh, the book, uh, the Voyager book. Get those entries in, everybody, by the 7th. I'd like to make one little clarification because uh, maybe people won't get mad at me. Include acting directors. All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about what you were doing 45 years ago and whether you're still working. Thank you, and good night. Just barely. I think I'm, I think I'm due to uh, going for the shop for a tune-up, just like the Voyager spacecraft. But Bruce, of course, is the chief scientist, and he's in great shape right here on What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its voyaging members. Marco Verda and Ray Poletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.